my name is Kristen Stammer. Thanks so much for joining us today and really hope you're doing well. So this session was originally booked in March as an in-person event in Sydney. We had the room booked, we had lunch organised, and of course it was all cancelled due to the shutdown. So six months later, we're all regularly dialing into webinars, BYO Coffee, and it's now time to look to the future again. It's interesting to see what themes for the future for consumer sector companies are still the same as the time just before the cancelled session. Some themes are accelerated due to COVID and some new themes have emerged. We're really grateful to Thomas Rudiger-Smith from McKinsey joining us today and sharing his insights into what consumer sector companies will look like in the future and what companies are and should be doing to prepare for that future success. Our second speaker is Peter Jones, a partner in our tech and digital team. Peter will be looking at digital transformation issues for consumer sector companies. And our third speaker is Natalie Gasper, a partner in our employment team. Natalie will share some thoughts on how consumer sector companies can ensure their workplace strategy really keeps pace with the evolving consumer needs. Themes across all of this include trust, trust in products, trust in technology, trust in people, and trust in places. Thomas, thanks again for joining us, and I'll hand over to you to discuss your thoughts on what consumer sector companies are and should be doing to position themselves for success. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kristen, um, and, and hopefully everybody can can see my screen by now. Um, very, very excited to be here again and talk a bit about kind of what we're seeing in terms of the consumer of the future. It will be a bit of a whirlwind because we are seeing quite a few things, and it's really there's a number of things to keep note of. But before I actually start talking about the consumer, one thing that's really important when we start talking about consumers in Australia and also globally is actually to understand a bit about the backdrop. And I won't spend a long on it, but it's really important in terms of understanding where consumer sentiment is heading. The first backdrop and the first really important thing is the health and our consumer behaviors are not linked. They were linked in the beginning when we saw a steep, steep decline in terms of you know, consumers being out and about. But as, as kind of we've managed to keep the health crisis under control, the consumer behavior is following a different path. The second thing that's really important to understand around Australia is the role of employment. We're in a recession, and that recession is going to last for, for a period of time. And one thing is obviously unemployment as, as a measure in its own right. But there's also a significant amount of hidden unemployment that's happening in Australia, which basically is the hours worked are dropping as well. So unemployment numbers will only tell you part of the story. And really to under, get underneath the skin of what's happening in consumers' lives, you have to understand the broader and hidden unemployment in terms of flexible workforces becoming even more flexible, you know, number of hours being reduced and so forth. The third thing that's really important to understand when we think about Australian households and Australian consumers is, you know, a lot of Australians are struggling to raise basic amount of money. $500, you know, most households can kind of still get there. But once it starts getting into slightly larger savings amount, a lot of households are starting to struggle to actually raise that amount and it's increasing. So Australian households are struggling and from a, from an economic point of view, and that carries through in a lot of the sentiment that we see. So what are we actually seeing from, from Australian consumers and how are they reacting? Well, 
when we when we started with COVID and, and looking at Australian consumers since the beginning of, 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 of April, one of the things we wanted to do was actually dig a bit underneath the skin of Australian consumers. And we unearthed three things. Number one, I'll actually start in, in kind of in the middle here because it's a really important one is Australian consumers and Australians at large spent part of the beginning of COVID to really make renewed commitments to their values and their goals. That means, you know, how do I want to lead my life from a health point of view? What are the friends that really matter to me and what friends don't matter to me? And some of us are continuously be forced to make those trade-offs in terms of how we spend our, our time out and about, especially those in lockdown. The second thing that we saw, which is really important as well, is we saw that translate into much more deliberate and mindful decision-making. Not just who do I spend my time with, but what do I buy and what do I value as an individual? That's changing. And the third thing that we saw was a renewed focus on control seeking. We can't control COVID. We can't control what's happening out there. But what we can control is a whole number of things around our diet, how we spend our money, again, again, who we choose to spend time with. So those were kind of some of the fundamental values that we saw and, and, and needs flowing through from a very much of an ethnographic point of view. If you think about COVID and how that's changing, you know, the life for the typical consumer, and if, you know, we want to try and draw analogies to the GFC, to, you know, other pandemics, all great and fine. But the reality is that COVID is probably the first, first real crisis that is hitting a 360 degree view of the Australian consumer. It's not just a recession. It's a change in how we lead our lives. Therefore, it is fundamentally different and it's impacting everything from how do we shop? How do we work? How do we communicate with each other? And how do we move around our country? A lot of those things were not restricted during you know, GFC in other countries or during, during SARS, for example, in China, as an example. What A lot of the things we're seeing in terms of the new trends are actually not new trends. A lot of it is accelerations of existing trends. There's definitely new things that are coming through. But a lot of the things we're seeing around frugality, you know, um, kind of being more focused on health, sustainability, all of those things were happening beforehand. The role of promotions, a lot of those things, you know, consumers were already starting to pick up even more. The big, big kind of 180 degree, if there is one, is the role of the home. And consumers starting to spend less and less time out and about, you know, there's all undergo trend, being spontaneous. We're starting to be much more of a mindful and much more of a planned consumer, driven by these underlying emotional shifts that I was talking about beforehand. So. It would be wrong to start thinking about, you know, the consumer trends of COVID being entirely new, but it is a significant acceleration from what we saw in the past. At the heart of some of these things and the heart of some of the consumer trends we're seeing is actually it is about the economy. And a lot of the things is about the nervousness of that Australian consumers have about the Australian economy. Since we began tracking, you know, the Australian consumer sentiment in the beginning of April, the Australian economy has been the number one cause of concern for Australians, and it's stayed high. When it comes to the links of the crisis of public health, you could, if you wanted to, basically draw the, you know, the, the curve of new cases, and it would track kind of the, the sentiment around the links and the public health extremely closely. As we manage those things around COVID in terms of the, as a virus, those things will start becoming less of a concern. What's not changing? is the economic sentiment and consumers are being are actually quite worried about the future. But the reality is not the same for everyone. And this is a really important thing for any consumer facing businesses to start thinking about how is this playing out for my consumers? 
what we saw and what we did is we basically ran a segmentation around what are the financial needs, the emotional experience that, that Australians have in terms of, you know, their living situation their, and their financial situation. And what we found were four quite distinct segments. I won't go through all of them in detail, but the two ones that are really important is, you know, you have sort of far right, what we call my income is jeopardized. This is, this is almost 30% of Australians where they felt a major impact on their finances due to job or income loss as a household. doesn't have to be themselves personally, but it might be a partner. It might be whoever they live with or, you know, so forth that have actually seen a reduction in income. This tends to skew from like the age of 30 to 50. A lot of them are millennials. And unfortunately, a lot of this also tends to skew more towards women versus men. But this is the segment that is driving a lot of the uncertainty. And are actually the ones feeling COVID the hardest. You then have a segment which is actually relatively fine in, in many respects. Yes, we're working from home, but our households are still pretty stable and secure. We haven't seen a decline in household income. We get, we, yes, we get to spend more time at home, but the pandemic has not impacted our lives more than changing our behaviors. It hasn't changed our financial situation. And when you start thinking what that actually means is that the ones that where they feel their income has been jeopardized are the ones that are driving a lot of the nervousness, rightfully so, around where will the economy head, versus you know those that are actually not that have seen less of a change tend to be much more optimistic about the future. An interesting thing, and, and a very last side note on this is we're also seeing an, a segment of consumers that have always kind of stood outside of the economy, or at least on the perimeter of the economy. They tend to be in low-income jobs, and for them. COVID, again, is not a huge change because they've been shifting back and forth between government subsidies or in and out of the labor market. So for them, in certain respects, the subsidies in terms of job keeper and job seeker has actually increased their, increased their wealth. And that's starting to flow through in some of how people are spending. And we see that with the stimulus, which is actually a lot of the, you know, when people start thinking about, oh, you know, we're heading towards better times. A lot of the uptick that we're seeing in terms of spend from a consumer point of view is driven by stimulus or super withdrawals. And as that come off, one can absolutely think of that that drug of, of additional injection in terms of spend that's being pumped into the economy will have a huge implication in terms of what is going to be the next wave of, un, of job losses. How are consumers going to feel as they start really to realize that, you know, this can't keep on going on. We can't keep, can't keep stimulating the economy the way we've done in the past. And consumers are starting to realize that one of the things we realized in our latest round of, of tracking of sentiment is that the focus on price is becoming stronger and stronger, even with the segments that have been less impacted from a financial point of view. Another thing which is very talked about across at the board, and I actually won't spend a lot of time on it because it is happening, is the digital acceleration. It's an important one, but it was happening before COVID. And we're seeing it continue, and a lot of it will stick around. It won't stick around to the same extent as we probably have seen during COVID, but consumers where consumers that have found it convenient, consumers that have found it helpful, will actually are much more likely to to continue in this kind of vein. One of the things, for example, is you know food and takeout recently is a, at two x what it was for an average week during pre-COVID times. So all of these things are starting to change our habits, and the longer we are in lockdown, the more likely it'll become part of the way we lead our lives and the way we have our routines. The second thing that's interesting is when we start thinking about consumers is, as I've already mentioned, price is really important, and we should absolutely understand that consumers are becoming more frugal, which is driven by you know being more mindful about how I spend my money, 
but also planning more. We don't want to be out and about as much as we were in the past, at least as long as you know the threat of COVID is still here. So we're more likely to make shopping lists. We're more likely to you know go shop once and do a big weekly shop rather than to do multiple small shops. The other thing that's still really important to understand is a lot of the trends that we saw prior to COVID around sustainability, ethical pr- consumption, and so forth have not gone away. They're still there, and consumers still expect that to be part of the purchasing decision and part of the offer that brands and retailers provide. They just want it at a better price. So in many respects, the bar for effectively engaging with consumers is increasing because the demands that they have of, I want it all, price, value, quality, you know, ethical, and preferably be locally relevant and a local brand, is all still there. And consumers will have to make trade-offs. And within every single category, within every single consumer company, you have to figure out what are actually the trade-offs that my consumer is going to make in the, in the granular detail. The big question that I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not going to pretend to have a crystal ball, is what will stick and what won't stick. The easiest way to kind of look at this is, in, if I mean, in three chunks. There's stuff that's temporary. A lot of that stuff, in my view, is very much linked to what has been COVID-imposed. There's stuff kind of in the middle where I honestly don't know. I think a lot of that will become a question around how long will, will COVID last? When is the vaccine going to come? How much are we going to you know, really start recasting our home, not as a home, but as a castle where we entertain our friends? And how much of that is actually going to translate into us really picking up online and digital shopping? We're absolutely seeing some of these things start trending more and more towards enduring, especially as the lockdown continues. But I would say for these ones, it's still very much too early to say. What is absolutely not too early to say is that we're seeing a frugality that's linked to recessions. We've seen that in the past from the TFC and so forth. Consumers are going to trade down. They're going to be more price sensitive. They're going to be more focused on how they spend their money. And they're going to shop around in order to get that deal that still helps them meet their need for you know, health, natural, sustainable quality or whatever it is that their purchase preferences are. The other thing that's important to see in terms of what's going to stick around from a digital point of view is remote work. And one of the conversations I have a lot with a lot of the companies I talk to is, will this actually stick around? Absolutely. But it was there before COVID. Again, it's an acceleration. We know millennials and generations said actually enjoys working remotely and they will continue to do so. And then there's a whole range of esports, all of these things which were there beforehand as well. So what do we do know is that this is going to be huge. It is an acceleration of what we saw from the past. There is a few things that will change and, and is a 1-8 degree, mainly how it comes to the occasions around the home. We do know it will be multi-stage and it will take a long time for this to play out in the right way. But what we also do know is that it's uncertain and I don't have any of the answers. I will continue to monitor it because I think it's absolutely fascinating. But there is a whole lot of systemic uncertainty here and everybody has to be able to be nimble and agile in terms of how they respond to it. But hopefully on the flip side, there is a huge amount of opportunity for any consumer facing business to actually go after some of these. So the last thing I'd say is the way we think kind of what does that actually mean in terms of how you think about approaching consumers is I think in the past there was a lot of we know what the trends are. We know how the trends are going to unfold. So I'm going to hit there. I'm, these are my five strategic projects that are going to go after this specific consumer segment. The reality is that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in the future, and you have to be much more nimble in terms of how you how you operate as a company and how you approach consumers. So for us, the analogy we use is in the past it was about autopilot, and we're just heading there. We're setting our strategy, and we're going there. Now it becomes much more around 
what you're at the way you emergency fly. You know, how can how quickly can you change the destinations? How do you remain nimble to switch your labor force into, you know, digital fulfillment versus actually uh, stocking shelves or dealing with customers live in store? All of those things are becoming even more important as we see kind of how the consumer trends play out. I know that was an incredibly fast whirlwind of what, what some of the things we're seeing from a consumer consumer sentiment point of view is. I could talk about this for hours, um, and I'm always happy to do so. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll pass it back to you, Kristen, to, uh, to continue the conversation. Thanks so much, Thomas. That was um, absolutely fascinating. Um, and just before I hand over to Peter, there is um, a Q&A function, so please do put any questions in and we'll hopefully have time to answer a couple at the end, but if not, very happy to follow up afterwards on email um, in response to any questions. Um, thanks again, Thomas. That was um, incredibly interesting and informative. Peter, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Kristen, and, and thanks, Thomas. And I'm not sure how um, one will follow Thomas's um, particular presentation, but I will do my best. And look, I think there was some really interesting uh, commentary in Thomas's um, sort of discussion on some of those trends. And those trends, when you look at it through the perspective of sort of a digitalization or digital transformation, call it what you will, this issue of it being nothing more than acceleration is probably accurate in the sense that a number of clients have been working on digital strategies for quite some time. This has been essentially the kick up the butt that's then forced a number of those organisations to think, actually, now's the time. What do we do? We've got an opportunity. So never waste the crisis. How do we use this as an opportunity to maybe start challenging some of the ways in which we've historically done things? Um, look at some of those uh, those areas that have been untouchable in the past and maybe start testing some of those around how we approach what we do with our consumers. Uh, and importantly, I think as well, that the thing that's really coming through in the work that I've been doing is this clear view around there's no point in necessarily moving to a digital strategy unless that is actually delivering on something of value to your end customers. Um, any number of us can think about projects in the past that have focused on back-end kind of you know, transformation activities that are supposed to deliver value, but have inevitably not. Either they've stalled or they frankly were never going to deliver the endpoint value. And I think that move to more forward thinking, what makes change, what doesn't make change, this focus on what makes change is pretty important. Um, but I thought actually what was really interesting in some of the conversation that Thomas was talking about was this issue around consumerism or sort of the issue of sort of mindful consumerism or values-based consumerism. And I was thinking about that in terms of how that impacts or how that relates to data, because when you look at any digital strategy, data is imperative in a digital strategy. And we're at a really interesting point, I think, in the maturity of data regulation in this particular country and indeed, I think, globally as well. If you go back 20 years, historically, data was regulated by the Privacy Commissioner and now the OAIC, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Um, and it was seen as sort of a regulatory compliance function. And at that point, and initially, there was sort of limited um, you know, sanctions and, and civil penalties involved. And it was a, sort of a slap on the wrist with a wet bus ticket. We then moved through a process of amplifying some of those civil penalties, but you'd argue that the OAIC probably didn't have the same resources as other regulators, and therefore it was not necessarily one that was pursuing a, a highly um, aggressive enforcement policy. If you fast track to where we are now, not only have we changed the nature of the privacy regime in terms of the civil penalty regime, so we're now looking at effectively a $10 million or three times the benefit that you get from a particular wrongful act as the maximum. But it's not just the matter of it being the OIC anymore. 
um, you've got the ACCC, which, you know, Rod Sims has been out, and if you've listened to him on, on Radio National, he's been out for probably the last two years talking about data, the importance of, of consumers and data and protecting consumer data in terms of their uh, the experience that they have, whether that's in social media or in other areas, um, is absolutely critical for the ACCC. And part of that was around the digital platforms inquiry, which is not just, while that was obviously focused on digital platforms, it actually, the recommendations that have come through that have far broader um, impact in terms of uh, organisations in Australia, not least of which would be a particular or potential statutory cause of action for infringement of privacy, which would make class actions a lot easier than what they currently are. So some really interesting thoughts from the ACCC in terms of how it wants to move forward with data protection and data regulation. But even with its current tools that it has in its toolkit, it's been out there and it's been manifesting uh, or looking at, at poor behaviour. So there's been issues with Health Engine, which was an entity that was subject to a Section 18 misleading and deceptive conduct claim relating to the way in which privacy commission, uh, sorry, privacy policies aligned to actually what the practices were. So the ACCC is out there as well. You've got ASIC, which is coming at this from a cyber protection perspective. So there was uh, two weeks ago, RI advice is subject to um, a claim relating to the directors failing to implement effective cybersecurity strategies and protections. There's no reason that that wouldn't extend more broadly to general director's duties as well from ASIC. So ASIC are getting into the game. You've had FERB looking at the issue of data protection for um, you know, issues of investment and or acquisition strategies. So you have this kind of interesting movement where regulators are increasingly interested in the area of data and it's aligned with an education of population. So the general consumers are far more savvy than they were 20 years ago around how organisations use their data and how they might be concerned about how organisations are using their data. And I don't think it's too far a step to go that if you are seen as someone who is not transparent with the way in which you are using information, that is going to impact on buy decisions. And you kind of have this wonderful kind of um, battle between, on the one hand, convenience, sort of the convenience of a digital application or at looking at in terms of a digital strategy versus the trust factor. And I think that's going to be the battle over the next sort of two or three years when we look at sort of moving forward. Equally, there are some fantastic opportunities in the consumer sector. I think if you look at things like um, augmented reality, for example, that has the ability to reduce warehousing costs, it has the ability to reduce returns, all this, this positive convenience, which is great, but that has to be aligned with a far more holistic view and an integrated view of managing data risk, which is not just a legal compliance issue. It's not a regulatory compliance issue, but it actually spans across all of the organisation. And that's the piece that I think we're moving into now. And the, probably the most exciting part in terms of the work that I do is working with clients on that holistic data management strategy, data, you know, digitalization strategy. I'm just conscious of time, Kristen, so I might hand back to you and uh, hand back to Natalie. Thanks so much. I know it's a whirlwind tour. Um, now to um, Natalie Gaspar on the um, workplace strategies and how companies are keeping them aligned with the um, changing consumer needs. Thanks so much, Nat. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Thomas and, and Peter, for your insights. Um, fear not, everyone on this call, for the health of your respective industries. Just in the 20 minutes, I've had two deliveries at my door. So <laughs> I've left a post-it note saying, do not ring doorbell and then on live <laughs> seminar. So look, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of themes that both Peter and Thomas have spoken about today from an employment and workforce strategy concept. 
The first is flexibility and completely echo the comments that have already been made with respect to this being an acceleration. I do think though that um, businesses for the first time in a very, very long time have got the groundswell and the impetus to actually leverage some change in this space. So what we're already starting to see, unsurprisingly and unfortunately, is a reduction in uh, workforces and businesses already who are either haven't been able to avail themselves of the JobKeeper flexibilities that have been provided um, or are looking to come off that either uh, shortly or in March next year, starting to have a careful think about their labour planning strategy. Now, uh, what that is looking like in, in many sectors and, and those on this call is a move from permanency to casualisation. And of course, one can understand that that is about being able to be future fit and have an eye to the future and be able to flex up and down. And we've seen that um, already um, demonstrate um, those businesses that do have that flexibility are very quickly able to, uh, to, to change and to move with the time. So, you know, as we move towards more, say, omni-channel retailing, businesses that are constrained by their enterprise agreements that have really rigid employment classifications that says your customer service person is allowed to serve customers but they're not allowed to possibly uh, pack and deliver a, an online delivery order are really going to be able to struggle to keep up in, in, in the environment that we're moving for. So, so for those that are thinking about this, it does involve a deliberate strategy now, both for the short and the medium, but also for the long term as to what that looks like. Now, um, there's, there's no magic fix for that, I'm afraid, and we've been doing a lot of thinking with clients about how to, how to get um, people there. Um, the world that we're in at the moment with enterprise agreements and um, modern awards, they are quite cumbersome. I mean, take a look at the, the general retail industry award. If, if you've had the um, misfortune of grappling with that instrument, you kind of need an advanced uh, logistics degree to figure out just how to roster your, your people. There's something like 127 different triggers of how someone gets paid under that instrument. There is a space where um, there is some flexibility in place. So whether that's renegotiating your enterprise agreements, looking towards more flexibility in that regard. The other point I just wanted to uh, pick up on in the remaining couple of minutes is this concept of, of trust and also about the deliberateness of consumers. So just on the trust point, that absolutely translates to human beings as consumers and to the deliberate choices that they are making when they purchase a product or a service. But those same people are employees and they go to work. And, and um, again, an acceleration of the trend that we've already started to see businesses that are doing this well are bringing their people along their journey with them from the value sentiment to um, the working together. There's huge sticks out there at the moment um, in terms of wage compliance and the like. And, you know, the Fair Work Ombudsman um, is unashamedly pursuing employers who get this wrong. So I do think there is a making sure your house is in order piece. And again, we've been doing a great deal of work with um, a lot of organisations to make sure they do get that right. Because quite frankly, if you're not paying your people properly, that, that trust goes quite quickly. And so your ability to bring employees on the journey for your future fit state um, will be compromised. 
There's also a really interesting piece in terms of um, agility. And as we see uh, people obviously trend towards working more from home, how that fits within your industrial relations architecture that applies in your business. You know, how do you have people who choose, I'm not a morning person, I prefer working at night, but if I'm covered by an enterprise agreement that says that I get overtime at that, at that rate, you know, how can you how can you work towards that? So it is the time to do some thinking in that space. Um, there is uh, absolutely ways that you can start to, to build about those change. And it's really, I think, incumbent um, for organisations to really uh, do a bit of navel gazing now and start to have those conversations to make sure you're ready for five years' time. The last little plug I just wanted to provide, um, we've been doing a lot of thinking as a firm on, um, you know, the future of work and really commend to those on the call. We've got a hub on our HSF website about the future of work and what that looks like in terms of employee activism and the like um, and how that translates. So we, again, that deliberateness of consumers, what that means like when they're in, wearing an employee hat. So, um, love to help you in this space and um, now's absolutely the time to uh, seize the day on this stuff. Thanks so much Nat. Um, just given the time we might um, hold off on Q&A so we can finish on time. Um, we do have a part two to this on 22nd of October on the future of supply chains um, and McKinsey are kindly joining us again, John Lang. Uh, John spoke at a, one of our sessions in uh, April on the impact of COVID on the supply chain. So this one will be again, really looking um, forward to the future success of supply chains. Um, and joining John will be Tim Stutt on ESG issues and Nandalau from our Shanghai office um, with the Asian perspective on supply chains. So really look forward to seeing you then. And thanks again, Thomas, Peter and Nat. Thanks everyone, good morning.